Hello and welcome to Some Ornithological Chat, a podcast called SOC by the SOC. I'm Mark Lewis, I'm the SOC's Birding and Science Officer and I'll be hosting this monthly podcast where we'll have some reasonably serious conversations about topical issues and we'll follow it with some lighter stuff about birding in general. And I'm joined today by uh, Mr David Steele. So if you could tell us who you are, uh, where you are and what you do. Oh, it's great to be here, Mark. Thank you for the invite. My name is David Steele, and I'm the reserve manager for the Isle of May. I've been working on the island for eight years. I work for Nature Scott, and I manage all aspects of the reserve out in the Firth of Forth. When I say where you are, you're actually in my living room. You, <laughs> you turned up uninvited. <laughs> <laughs> uninvited, but I got a cup of tea out of it, so I'm not, not complaining. <laughs> so, uh, we should be serious, because we're, you know it's very topical at the moment, and as someone who works with seabirds sort of locally and immediately on the Isle of May and more nationally with Nature Scotland, you're very well positioned to talk to us about avian flu. So could you s- summarise where we're at at the moment in terms of bird flu? Oh, what a, a disastrous summer it's been for seabirds, particularly with, with avian flu, H5N1. It's imprinted on my, my mind. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, you know, we, we, the story we seem to be picking up is that it came into bonk season, the great skewers last July, last summer. Um, and then this spring it was detected in, in gannets, in northern gannets. And it's spread through the colonies since, across from St Kilda, across into the Shetlands, and then down into the east coast. The big concern, the big worry is it's obviously killing lots of gannets, lots of bonkseas, but it's actually jumping species as well now. It's actually mutating into in, on, onto other species, so we've seen it in guillemots, razorbills, it's been recorded in puffins. The whole plethora almost of seabirds that have had it, and it's it's proven costly for, for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of those concerns is, like you say, is how... Swiftly, it seems to be spreading from colony to colony and between species as well. So uh, it, we seem to have been okay on the West Coast, but East Coast colonies have been hit most severely. And it does seem to be, for some species, restricted to Scottish colonies. And then for other species, like terns, it's, it's all throughout the North Sea. So, I mean, we could potentially see some pretty catastrophic uh, well, rates of mortality this summer, couldn't we? We are, yeah. We're starting to get some some bleak pictures coming out. You know, down in Corkett Island off the Northumberland coast, um, we've just been informed that sort of the 1,964 pairs of sandwich terns were nested on there, all their chicks have been wiped out. That's a whole generation gone, just like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's such a mixed picture as well, because I, I work on the Isle of May, it's a big seabird colony. We've got, you know, a lot of nesting orcs and, um, and terns nesting on there. Seems to be like it is in our kitty works, it's been confirmed, um, but it hasn't been detected in our orcs. And yet, opposite us, we can see St. Ab's Head, um, it's clear from the Isle of May, and, and they're getting die off of guillemots, um, which we're not seeing. Um, but of course, the big one for us is the Bass Rock, you know, it's it's the world's biggest population of gannets which nest on there. Um, there's 70,000 pairs. And we've seen catastrophic numbers dying on, on, on the bass. Um, and that's come from sort of further north where you've seen, you know, some some desperate sort of figures coming out, you know, particularly in bonksies and in great skewers. Uh, there's an indication that a third of all great skewers of, uh, oh, sorry, a third of all the world's population of great skewers have died this spring in the UK. That's a frightening figure. Um, and there's, that's the real concern for us. How does it How does it affect you personally, sort of? Being around all that, it's very easy for me to be detached from it. I mean, I see many fewer sandwich turns, for example, this year. 
And I can speculate that that might be due to uh, bird flu getting into the colony on the eighth estuary. But you're surrounded by the death, and that must be pretty tough. Oh, it's it's, it's tough going. You know, you you. you you, you want the best for these seabirds, you know, you, you live and breathe it with them, you, you, you're going through, you know, the, the, the breeding season, you're seeing them come in, you're seeing them, you know, copulating and nest building and then, you know, and, and then you, you want them to, to lay eggs and have, have chicks and the last thing you want them to do is be going around picking up dead or watching dead on, on these colonies and desperately sad and there's a lot of people out there who, who work closely with seabirds and it's been, a, it's been a tough time for people. It's, you know, we, we, we naturally and obviously we're concerned about the seabirds themselves but um but the people who were who were there on 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 the sort of the cold front as they would say it's it's desperate it's it's been a i think most people are just hoping to just get the breeding season finished get these birds out to sea get away from this 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 horror Mm -hmm. and uh and hopefully come back stronger next year and hopefully yeah the birds will come back stronger next year but the bird flu won't come back at all (laughs) and then then the birds can get on with the serious business of, of rebuilding colonies and populations etc indeed yeah absolutely so you know you've really nicely set the scene for us about how we're looking in the uk and in scotland what about the rest of the world well we're starting to uh, pick up reports elsewhere so crossing the um the eastern seaboard sort of of the united states and, and canada they're reporting you know in in large numbers of gannets over that side um we've been told it's now in the arctic it's just reached guillemots and, and swavibard so so Oh goodness, the, the, the concern goes on, and, and one of the big things we're, we're, we're worried about is obviously you know our seabirds do go far and wide. You know we've got uh, things like fulmers going off of the Atlantic, got terns themselves, which will go to West Africa and beyond down to the, the pack ice of the Arctic, and um, and if it's if, if it follows them, it goes with them. You know, and it gets into colonies of uh, you know vulnerable sort of um, albatross species or or yeah, uh, penguins as well. Yeah, that's when. We'll, we'll literally have a, a global pandemic of bird flu and it'll just be, it'll be disastrous, complete disaster. Do we know how long birds can sort of carry it and be infectious? I'm just sort of thinking of the timescale for, for example, an Anxia water migrating into the South Atlantic, how long can it carry it for without without developing symptoms and then being a much less effective vector, I guess. It, absolutely. It's, it's funny, we all become experts <laughs> over, overnight on this, don't we? Yeah. And, uh, and we're still learning. I think that's the thing is to, we're still learning about this. So apparently on, on, a, on a corpse, it can it can last for up to a month in, in the tissue. So we know that much. So birds lying around, um, colonies can spread it even even after death. Um, but it's a very good point. Yeah, how, how long can it last? We, we don't know the answers. Um to that one unfortunately we can just hope i guess we yeah, can just hope absolutely. and uh we know that people walking their dogs should be careful because it can be transmitted to dogs and i believe that it's been found as a case being founded seals in north america too yeah goodness can can you believe it what, what more can we thwart while <laughs> yeah it's been it's been recorded it's also been recording foxes um which is obviously is, is a scavenger you know mm-hmm. these birds which are, have been washed in obviously a, it's a great food source so yeah if you if you've got your dog you know and you're uh, along the coasts you know please keep them away you know keep them on a the lead um just for the health of your dog and um, yeah, that's that's what we can sort of say about it. So while we're on about <clears throat> what we as individuals can do, I guess this is a good time to mention uh, that there's a, a phone line. So if you encounter dead or dying birds, there's a DEFRA hotline to call. And if there haven't been any previous cases of bird flu for a certain amount of time, they'll come out and they'll test the birds. Uh, and I think if you're on certain reserves, then bodies will be disposed of as well. 
don't have that off the top of my head, but I'll include a link to it in the uh, in the information about the podcast. Unless you know it off the top of your head, I don't actually know. <laughs> but it, but it's important, yeah, to to keep on recording. You know these these birds that are, that are coming in and and, and dying because um, it's it's good to build up a picture of just what it's hitting when where. Um, really important message. Cool. Okay, so back closer to home. We've talked about you know. <laughs> The worst case scenario of this getting into penguin colonies and albatross colonies and, and things like that. Um, back close at home, which are the species that we need to be most concerned about? Well, I suppose, you know, looking in the British Isles context and the world context, you've got to look at bonksies straight off, you know, great skewers. Um, 60% of the world's population nest in, in, in the UK um, and they've been hit so bad, you know, the, the, the figures coming off these islands up in the north, um, you know, we've, we've been told sort of 300 dead on Noss and uh, 400 dead on Fula, 250 on Fair Isle. I mean, the, the numbers are, are, are shocking. So so without doubt, that's that's the, the big concern. Of course, any seabirds, you know, they're, they're in, under such pressure um, and have had tough times of it. We know things like kittiwakes are one of the fastest declining seabirds, you know, in, it's, it's in them. And you think, goodness, can we throw anything more? Um, other good examples, rosier tern. Um, to date, it's, it's, it's killed about 8% of all rosier terns in the colony in Corkett Island off the Northumberland coast. And, you know, it's, there's only 150 pairs breeding the British Isles. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really worrying. It's worrying for all species and, and, and particularly those I've just mentioned. Yeah, so with regards to Bonksy, you know, 60% in, well, in Scotland. Um, where are the rest of them? I guess they're sort of Iceland and places like this. Has it reached Iceland and places like that yet? Questions we don't know. Um, yeah, this information is just still trickling out, really, yeah. whether it's in, in, in Bonksies elsewhere or whether it's just maintained itself in the British Isles context. So, I guess that we're blessed in some way because, you know, we have quite a high population density of people. So, people, you know, people find bodies and report them and stuff like that. But, you know, vast country like Iceland where they probably don't have quite as many seabird researchers or people visiting seabird colonies. Indeed, yeah. You know, we just don't have that information mm-hmm. trickling down to us. So, yeah, not looking good for bonksies, not looking good for roseate terns. Um, what, what has it yet to be founded? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? So some species, we've seen it in obviously northern Gannet and bonksies, it's just decimating their populations. But other species, um, so we know it's in the Orcs, we know it's in Gillymott, Razorbill and Puffin, um, been confirmed in Puffin as well. Um, but then it hasn't been confirmed in Shag yet. Uh, European Shags have not been uh, been noted with it. Um, and I think that the well, there's there's one or two others, but they're just being found out that they have had it now. Um, but so it's it's quite interesting. Certain things have got it, and certain things seem resistant to it, or mm-hmm. or are not uh, suffering from it. So we don't know, for example, whether um, whether it's in any of the whole nesting species, like the petrels well, and Manx Shearwater. Sort and of I suppose to try and de- detect that is going to be quite difficult as well. Um, so the few people who, who research these species may come up with some answers, but yeah, things like storm petrels, leeches petrel, mm-hmm. you know, on these uh, very isolated colonies, you know, up in the far north. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if there's any, any effect Isolated on colonies and perhaps more likely to die much further out to sea, see. so we're less likely to see them getting, yeah. getting washed up on the shore as well. I, I feel it's going to take a time before we actually bring the whole picture together to exactly see, you know, the, the results of what's happened this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that'll be. Do you think be we can? Reading. Do you think we can ever know? Do you, you know, the, there's all sorts of people looking at, the, you know, seabird numbers on the Isle of May. Do, do they think that we'll ever fully understand 
what sort of a population impact this has had hand this on, year? Hand on heart, no. Um, not at all. You know, last year we had um, in August we had big die with guillemots on the in the North Sea, um, on, especially on the East Coast, um, and that wasn't linked to, to avian influenza. Um, but um, but the impacts this year, truly speaking, they'll, they'll not be able to put figures to it. Um, and um, what, what we will know is things like survival rates, how many birds have come back this spring, etc. But the true effects, we probably will never know because we'll never know. Which mortality is attributable to very to, to bird flu? Indeed. I guess. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I mean it's not it's not good news. And, <laughs> it's not. You know, I really do feel for all these people who have to document it and see it day in day out. You know, mm. the, the videos on Twitter are harrowing enough of yeah. you know du- uh, ducks, birds shaking their heads <laughs> and um, just keeling over, and you know that footage from Coquette that was released today, recording this on July the sixth. Was uh, yeah, extremely unpleasant. But you know that I feel like there's got to be some hope. Where would that hope come from? Yeah, that's right. We've got to be. You know, I'm the eternal optimist. You know, and especially where as, as a Gateshead football fan, <laughs> you have to be an eternal optimist. We do indeed, and you know, after 22 years of working with seabirds and having seen, you know, and, and help plot these declines of all these species, you know, I'm always optimistic that we can turn the corner. So, you know, we've got to hope that there's some immunity out there in the colonies. Um, that you know, as, as as we're seeing, we are seeing young get off. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not a complete catastrophic picture. You know, we are seeing young guillemots leaving the colonies and and, and kittiwakes fledging two or three young, which is the future. Um, so we've just got to hope that it's you know this impact isn't as as bad as what we are thinking at this moment. And we've seen seabirds. I wouldn't say bounce back because it's that implies that it's been very quick. But seabirds have come back from catastrophic declines before I mean specifically thinking about things like Arctic Turn and Kittiwake that had a really tough time 15 or so years ago um, yes they're not back to the numbers that they, that they used to have but they're sort of steadily getting there so the, bird, the, the birds are capable of coming back and you do have to wonder whether the ones that survived this year show some sort of resistance or you know maybe just get lucky or that some of these colonies that haven't been hit can provide some future adults to the colonies that have been here. Absolutely. The things like kittiwakes, we have seen a slight bounce back in recent years as well with, with populations down the East Coast. Um, you know, as you mentioned, way off, we need like a f- several decades of this bounce back to, to get back where we were. Um, but it's encouraging. And, um, you know, seabirds are, are very resilient. Uh, they're robust birds, you know, they, they have adapted. Maybe they're not adapting quick enough with climate change. Um, but hopefully, you know, there's, there is a future. There's still hope out there. Yeah, and that is the concern, isn't it? This just seems to be one th- an additional yeah. massive problem in a very tough life due to changing climatic conditions, you know, uh, fishing practices, etc. All of these things that pile the pressure onto seabirds. But I can see why people love working with seabirds. You know, I love watching them and find them incredibly charismatic and engaging. Uh, and I can so I can see why people have devoted their lives to monitoring them and, and working with them, and you know, let's hope that in the future they can monitor some some better news. Yeah, that's the that's the hope, isn't it? There's the optimism for you. And um, you know, one thing is, um, I'm not coming back as a seabird. I know that much. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, a nice segue into something a bit less doom and gloom. But before we hear a bit more from David Steele. Let's listen to some bird noises. 
Willow Warbler and Chiff Chaff are a perennial ID pitfall, uh, especially at this time of year where there are lots of young birds around which won't be singing, and the adult birds are a lot less likely to be singing as well. So you're relying on plumage features such as the primary projection uh, or leg colour, or of course we can rely on calls. Now, Willow Warbler and Chiff Chaff sound pretty similar, but there are differences that are pretty consistent between the two. So first I'm going to play you some Willow Warbler calls, and then I'm going to play you some Chiff Chaff calls. So hopefully there you'll be able to see that, by and large, those calls are pretty similar, but maybe you can start to hear some differences between them. So next I'm going to play three of each, one after the other. See if you can work out which is which. For me, the key difference between separating... Willow Warbler calls from Chiff Chaff calls is the presence of a letter U. That might sound a bit strange. But when we use English to talk about what these birds sound like, we might describe the Chiff Chaff call as wheat, and we might describe the Willow Warbler's call as wheat. So it's that simple letter U in between the H and the W that makes all of the difference. What I'm going to play for you next are Chiff Chaff and Willow Warbler calls one after the other. And listen at the beginning of each call. Does it immediately say wheat or does it say who eat? So there you go. Will a warbler say who eat? And Chiff Chaff say, who eat? And now, back to something hopefully a bit lighter from my conversation with David Stale. If you could come back as any bird, what would you come back as? <laughs> oh, that's put me on the spot, my goodness. Probably not a seabird at this moment in time, but they have a very tough life, don't they? Um, if I was coming back as, as a bird... Um, I'd probably come back sort of something as a, I don't know, oh, it's, a, it's a tricky question. So I would like to be a swift, but I don't oh. fancy all that migration. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit too bit too far to fly, something a bit more sedentary. Yeah. Um, but it lives for a fair, fair amount of time, but just enjoys life. Like is it peregrine? Yeah. You know. Yeah, things with, with, with persecution, except well, I thought about a bird of prey. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's just something like a mute swan, where you just plod about, <laughs> you do your thing, you eat some food. You know, you raise your family. Um, yeah, probably a mute swan. Lives for fair age. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds nice. And uh, I shall come and feed you some bread. Um, <laughs> so that seems like a nice point to move on to something a bit lighter. Now, I want to sort of just have a birders conversation with you. Now, imagine, yeah. imagine we're down the pub. You don't, have to, <laughs> you don't have to pretend to be drunk or anything like that. So I've got a few questions for you. Hopefully yeah. you'll be able to answer them. So, question number one. Uh, Feels if like you mastermind. Are, well, 
I won't know if, you, if you're yeah. right or wrong. <laughs> and I'm not going to say I've started, so I'll finish. Um, question number one. If you had a, access to a time machine, once and once only, what one moment in your birding life would you go back to? And it could be anything. Oh. It could be to put something right or just to relive a particular moment or something what a, like that. What a, what a question, yeah. So I've been a, a bird watcher all my life. Um, so and I've been birding on East Coast Islands for the last 22 years. I was on the Farne Islands for, for 14 and then the Island May. So I've been very privileged for my birding career to, to be to wonderful places and very spoilt as well. Um, I mean, when I go bird watching on the mainland, um, looking at trees, what trees? What's all that about? <laughs> Such hard work. Um, go, go on islands without them. Um, so I went back. Oh, honestly, I'd like one of the one of the moments I remember that I was, you know, an outstanding moment. It wasn't for its rarities or its, its scarcities, but I did have them. But um, I remember back in October 2016, um, I was just walking along the. The, the cliffs of the Isle of May and we had an easterly blow and it was in my face and, and there was a bit of sort of drizzle and rain and it was just it was just magical I was just walking along and, and there in front of us were just it was coming alive. This the sea campion, which is this low ground hugging plant, was just teeming with life. And I was just watching sort of, you know, gold crests, and I was getting gold crests landing on me wellies. And I was just like, oh my god, this is amazing. I feel like I feel like alive. Like this is I'm, I'm in it. And then it was just carpet of chiff chaffs. You know, chiff chaffs, which you normally see, you know, flitting about in bushes and, and trees. These things there was all fifty of them just carpeted across the floor and it wasn't for the the, the 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 rarity status of anything there and it was just this magic of like this is like migration this is like this is like happening it's like real this look at uh, wow you know and then i just you know you'll get like and you, you know you'll get a a red wing fly over and it's oh, it's just I, I love those magical sort of moments where you've got a diurnal migration actually happening you know and, and stuff in front of you and it's just what's all about for me i just i just love those moments so i'll probably snap back to a time like that and just relive those moments because you know whole world and work and everything else you just block out and you're just in the zone and you're just loving it for for what it is bird migration that's best i think that you know obviously we all love a rarity but i think i, I totally see where you're coming from rarities are brilliant finding rarities is really exciting but you can't really beat that buzz of when you step out and you start seeing some migrants. Think, oh, you know, it, it could be on this. You know, this yeah. every you get a feeling that every next time you lift your bins, you're going to be looking at, <laughs> at something really, really cool. And quite often, you don't see yeah, anything yeah. exceptional or yeah. even rare on those days. But it's still some of the most fun birding that you can have. Yeah, so yeah. I. I totally get that. So you would go back to October 2016. So can I reverse the question? That's when you would go back to the uh, Arctic. Uh, well, you can. <laughs> um, I would go back a little bit further, um, and I can't exactly tell you when it was, but when I was younger, I'm going to say it was 1986, um, we were on a family holiday in Tunisia, Tunisia, and my dad was very gamely trying to balance a family holiday <laughs> with birding we, for, we, for me. We've all been there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, he did, a, he did a pretty good job. And uh, we were somewhere in the south of Tunisia. We weren't, like, in the desert. But it was pretty sort of arid. Driving around, we saw this wetland off in the distance. So my dad pulled over and made him, got out and went over there. And my mum and my sister rolled their eyes and started looking out. Definitely been there before. <laughs> and we went over, and I, I don't remember very much about it, but... Um, we saw some collared pratincles and we saw some collies oh, nice. and we came back. And, uh, you know, this was March 1986. 
And I didn't think about that moment for decades. Yep. And it struck me one evening. It's like March 1986, Tunisia, Curlews. I wonder if they could have been Slender Bill Curlews. <laughs> and ever since, you know, I mean, the chances are that they weren't. Yeah. But ever since I had that thought, Oh, That's man. really, really niggled at me. Goodness gracious. <laughs> and of course, so, that was peak time when they were there as well, wasn't I think, it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, so, that's when they would have been migrating through. No. There, was, there were definitely some left yeah, in North Africa at that time. And, um, I it? mean, they probably were just normal curlews, but... Literally the one that got away. Quite possibly. And, and you can never go back. Oh, I mean, my goodness. Well, no, because you've used the time machine to go and look at chip chips. <laughs> <laughs> so I've wasted my life yeah. <laughs> anyway uh, okay next question what's the best piece of birding advice you've ever been given oh goodness um, been given plenty over the years um, you know it's it's a great hobby isn't it it's it's something you're always you know you're always learning aren't you it doesn't matter how much you do it and you know and, and at times I live and breathe it because it's, it's my job um, but you're still learning to, to the day aren't you and, and um, probably the best bit of advice is just just to keep going, you know, just to, you know, you'll have moments where you, it's a little moment or, or, or quiet times and you think, is it all worth it? And then there'll just be that magical moment, you know, you'll just, you know, see a grasshopper warbler and it'll bring it all alive and, you know, and, and you realise what it's all, you know, the first red wing of the autumn coming in or, you know, and so it's honestly, it's just, just keep going, you know, don't, don't, don't give up. Um, just enjoy those 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 moments. You know, we all, we all have little little times and seeing and finding birds, um, but they will come around again. So yeah, probably probably keep that. going. So um, somebody once said that to me. That was the you know the most important thing in rarity finding is to keep going. And I remember one day on Sunday, plodding about having not found very much, and his his voice sort of appeared <laughs> in the back of my head. Keep going. Uh, <laughs> not that he talks like that. And, uh, so I did keep going, and then literally. Five or six steps later, a blue throat popped up. Oh my goodness! In front of me, and I was like, "I'm definitely going to try and keep going a bit more in, in future." Oh, and there's, there's something in it. I think it's because you you feel like you know. I, sometimes you feel, "Ah, oh, I'm no good anymore. I, I, I can't find birds any good because I may go a few months without finding something." Especially, you know, I'm, I'm very, as I say, I'm very privileged to be um, working and birding on and living on the Isle of May. Um, but then it just happens, you know, it's, it's almost when you, you, you stop trying hard that something will, will pop up, you know, and uh, I'm towards the spring with a nectarine warbler and that was absolutely chuffed to bits. And, and I've seen a lot of nectarine warblers, you know, over, over, over my time, but, you know, it's still magical to find something like that. So, yeah, just keep on going. Keep it going. Yeah, we all get, well, maybe we don't. I, I, I also get those sort of, those periods of self-doubt. Oh, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not finding everything? Why is he down the coast finding everything? <laughs> yeah. And I'm not finding anything. And then, you know, something just pops up in front of you. I guess that's the thing with, you know, particularly talking about finding rare birds in particular here, but you may have a knack for it, but it's not a dark art really, is it? You no. know, quite often these things find you and all you need to do is, is be out there ready to ready to and, receive them. And again, it's probably going over a tangent slightly, but the other thing as well is something can make it really magical, but just to you and into your sort of local patch. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, the Isle of May, I remember um, a couple of years ago, I found a great spot of woodpecker. Now, a lot of people on the mainland, but oh, it's just a great spot. But to me, you know, it was a very rare bird for for the island, and um, it was fantastic. It was that moment, you know, and it wasn't um, it wasn't going to go out on pages and and and, and the news services, but to me, I just meant oh. Fantastic, get in. So, I'm, a, I'm an avid patch birder, and I know, I know that feeling. I remember a, a blue throat again. Actually, coincidentally, found a blue throat one spring morning. Very nice. And about five minutes later, 
my first ever stock dove for the patch. Oh, wow. Wow. And I celebrated the stock dove more than I celebrated <laughs> the, the blue which seems a little bit sort of perverse. But, uh, you know, that's that's burning, I guess. So while I'm about finding rarities, I want a prediction from you. Oh. The, the, well, the next first for Scotland. Next first for Scotland. Where's it going to be? Oh, my goodness. And if you wanted to elaborate, who's going to find it? Not me on the East Coast, because um, it's interesting, isn't it? Sort of Scotland still feels a place to be, you know, discovered and explored. You know, it was, we've seen, you know, we've seen burden groups and, and teams and, and, and people going out, um, you know, and, and discovering places like Barra, for example. That's, that's a great example in Scottish birding. But also, you know, Tyree's opening up a bit now and the Outer Hebrides, more birders are going there. And, and seem, seem to be, on the face of it, finding, you know, more more rarities, more more um, yank birds, for example, the American, American passerines and the likes. Probably a, a combination of sort of coverage, but also um, there's obviously something with weather systems these days, um, you know, potentially bringing in. So so the big one, um, and I would love to be there for the magical moment it was found, but I fancy something like a black-throated blue warbler. Black-throated blue warbler. I could um, just imagine it being on the Outer Hebrides somewhere. Uh, Those boys jumping up and down one day. Um, the Bower Boys. Oh, the Bower Boys. Yeah, yeah. And, and anywhere down that uh, down that Western Straits, um, you could you could imagine. Could you imagine finding one of those? I mean, uh, no, because I don't really know what they look like. <laughs> <laughs> they're just so impressive. Even in autumn on plumage, they're not dull. They're you know black and blue and, and striped. Oh my goodness! It's just it'd be one of those moments that you just. I don't think you quite believe it. You'll be like, what? Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 goodness, it's just stuff of dreams, that really, isn't it? Um, but there's plenty of things to be found for Scotland out there, isn't there's there? There's lots of things. Um, I don't want to preempt what anyone else might answer for that question, but I've been looking at the Scottish list recently, and there are, you know, there's things with a track record for turning up that haven't been seen in yeah. Scotland. Uh, yeah. Pendulum Tit. Pendulum tip, of course. Is one. Yeah. Uh, Eastern yeah. crowned warbler. You'd Oof. think we'd do with one of those somewhere, somewhere in the Northern Isles, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps so, even uh, Girdle Ness. If any, Girdle Ness, If anyone there is capable of <laughs> digging one of them out. Some, um, some old classics of the British Isles as well, like Willet, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, everyone predicts it every year and it never turns up. <laughs> yeah. I did a, I went through an exercise like this with Paul French. We listed a, I think it was our top 10 yeah. predictions for the next British firsts. And, uh, well, it's safe to say he completely wiped the floor with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. But, but honestly, but it's still, it's amazing what turns up, isn't it? Just sort of what keeps turning up. You know, we think, oh, well, that's it. Nothing more new can be added. You know, we've saturated, you know, the market. But yeah. every year seems to bring in new birds. And I think, you know, certainly thinking about this now, if I'm thinking about the next first for Britain, you know, my mind immediately turns to either an Eastern passerine or an American passerine or something like that. But actually... You know, with things like soft plumage and white chin petals in the last couple of years, it could very easily be a completely left field seabird or something like that. You know? Yeah, especially with uh, all the sea watching going on, etc. Isn't it? Did you have you seen any monstrous seabirds off the hell of me? No, no, not no. I must admit, I do put the hours in, and, and sometimes I, I curse a little bit to the south of me down in in Northumberland with some of the the, the great stuff. In fact, last year was soft plumage petal was tracked up there. The, the east coast but it's uh, it disappeared before it got to me good self um, so 
if you were to put anything into a birding room 101, <laughs> would, would it be Northumberland Sea Watchers? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lord. I used to be one. That was my trouble. So, so you know, it's it's like, you know, um, these phase petrels, which have, have just been split into three different ways. Um, and um, I actually have a privilege to, to, to find a few and see some off, off Northumberland, off the Farn Islands. Um, but now I've come to... Um, I've come up uh, up north on the Isle of Man. It's never been recorded on the Isle of Man. Uh, I missed I missed one last year, which is also a bit of a sore topic for your good self as well. Uh, I, I didn't miss anything. There was <laughs> nothing there to miss, as far as I'm concerned. It just didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this bird was seen off uh, Fife Ness, which is opposite the Isle of May. It was then seen off the um, off the Angus coast, and then it was seen off Girdle Ness yeah. with a certain Mister Lewis. And then there was another there was another one off Girdle Ness about a week later as well. And I wasn't there for that one. <laughs> you weren't there for that one? I was there for the first one, but I just didn't see it. <laughs> oh, that's just a thing of nightmares, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, so Northumberland birders um, in, in that Bermuda Triangle, as soon as they hit the, you know, the Firth or Fourth, the birds don't seem to come across to the, to the Isle of May, these these. these these passage uh, rare seabirds. Um, but one day, one day. So, yes, that can definitely go in. Okay. Well, I have noticed that, like, you get all these really good seabirds past Whitburn, large shearwaters and stuff like that, and... That doesn't translate to a good passage off the east coast of Scotland. So they're, maybe they're looping round, and the people of Flamborough are just recording like the same great shear water over and over again. <laughs> well, my concern is that sort of everyone, and obviously we've got good connections and good networks down the down the east coast, and of course everyone messaging me saying, "Oh, you're next. It's coming your way, David." And then I don't see it, and um, so everyone just looks at me and thinks, "Oh, he must be rubbish." Um, you know, all these birds going past, and he's not seen any of them. So well, I think that's the perfect place to end it. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, well, thanks very much for that's been brilliant. For- Popping by unannounced. <laughs> I was expecting to do this over Zoom, but you're very welcome. Thanks so. for the team up. Very, very much appreciated. Well, I mean, if, if everyone else can pop in, and that makes my life a whole lot easier. Um, thanks very much for talking to us about bird flu. Not a comfortable thing to talk about. Not a nice topic of conversation, but I think it's important that people know what's going on and also know what to do in the event of finding any ill or dead seabirds or any other kind of birds for that matter. So uh, just to reiterate, I'll put a link and the phone number that you're supposed to uh, call in the information about the podcast. And then uh, coming up after this, we've got some bird noises. Even though it's only July, return migration has started for some species. We might look up and see swifts on the move, and it's a really good time to pick up on the first migrating waders. And that's what we're going to have a listen to just now. Certainly where I do a lot of birding, the first sign of a wader overhead is is hearing it call. And we're going to listen to red shank and green shank calls and have a think about the differences between those two. So first I'm going to play you some red shank and then green shank calls. So we can hear that those two calls are pretty similar really. Both are given in groups of three and the frequency range it's covered and the general tone of the call is about the same. So how do we tell the difference between the two? This is a bit where I embarrass myself and try and impersonate these birds but for me the key difference is that in a green shanks call all of the notes sound the same. So you get tew 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 a little bit faster than that. With a red shank, the first note clearly sounds different to the other two. 
So with red shank you get tiu tu tu, tiu tu tu. See if you can hear that difference in the following track, which is going to be bursts of red shank, then green shank, then red shank, then green shank, over and over again. So there you have it. That's how to separate red shank and green shank flight calls. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Some Ornithological Chat, a podcast called SOC by the Scottish Ornithologists Club. If you're interested in learning more about what the SOC do and have to offer, take a look at the website. That's www.the-soc.org.uk. And if you'd like to know what SOC branches near you have got going on, have a look at the local branches tab on that website. That's at www.the-soc.org.uk slash local branches. Going on at Watson House, the HQ near Abilady in Lothian, there's a number of art ex- exhibitions running it over the next month or so. Currently, there is Birds and Botany and John Clare, which is a series of lithographs inspired by the poetry of John Clare, and Nature, Prints and Poetry, which is a selection of engravings by members of the Society of Wood Engravers. Uh, both of those run until July the 31st, and then from August the 3rd to the 25th of September, there's an exhibition called What's It Like to Be a Bird?, which features artwork by Catherine Rayner uh, from Tim Burkhead's book for young people, also called What's It Like to Be a Bird, which I'm sure will be brilliant. So thanks again to David Steele for taking the time to tell us all about avian influenza. Fingers crossed that by the time you listen to this, many of the birds that were potentially impacted by it have left colonies and gone out to sea somewhere where hopefully it will be much safer. I'd also like to thank Zeno Canto for collating and sharing over 700,000 recordings of birds from all over the world. Uh, the red shank and green shank recordings you heard earlier on came from Zeno Canto. The people who recorded those individual recordings are credited in the podcast notes. So thanks again to everyone, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Until the next time, cheerio. <laughs>